0: You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa, dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing at or coming soon to film scene. Our lineup includes Mike Lee's Mr. Turner, which continues to play at film scene throughout the weekend and following week. Next, we'll be discussing The Patient Stone by Afghan director Atik Rahimi. The Patient Stone plays on Tuesday, March 24th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Horizons, a series dedicated to bringing awareness to world cinema. Finally, we'll be discussing Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, which plays at Film Scene this Saturday, March 14th at 1 p.m. and Sunday, March 15th, also at 1 p.m. These screenings kick off the series A Sad and Beautiful World, the black and white films of Jim Jarmusch. Joining us in our third segment is Film Scene's co-founder and programming director, Andy Brody. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbach, the Programming Director of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Catherine.
1: Hello, glad to be here. And
0: Chongmin Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Changmin.
2: Glad to be here with the good weather.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm Leah Vonderheide, Bijou's Executive Director. I should also mention that all three of us are Film Studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start with our first film, Mr. Turner is the most recent award-winning film by British director Mike Lee. Changmin, you and I were both uh, very excited about this film and both share a love of Mr. Lee's work. So I'm excited to hear your response to this film.
2: Sure. So, Mr. Turner is a biopic of the most prestigious British or English painter, J.W.M. Turner. If you're a fan of 007 series, you might remember in the last franchise, Skyfall, there's a Turner painting. The finding Rare took to her last birth to be broken up, hanging before James Bond and Q when the genius young scientist delivers some not-so-high-tech gadgets. That being said, I think I have to mention Mike Lee, the director of this film, putatively the only great British filmmaker alive in the sense that he's still making good films. (laughs) I've watched most of his films since Naked, and almost every one of them is good. One motive keeps coming up, reconciliation. This is most obvious in his 90s films, including Secrets and Lies. How are you going to face the secrets that might change your life as you know it? And how are you going to deal with those intimate strangers who hide the truth from you? And as his career progresses, another film also comes into play, Aging. His last film, Another Year, is the most honest Brutal story about loneliness and aging taught in Four Seasons. I'll Michael Hennecke some more. We see all these elements emerging through the narrative of Mr. Turner. Contrary to most people's imagination of biopics of great painters, the director strives to get into the life of this magnificent painter to show him as a real human being. He has his rawliness and rough temperament. He treats his mad as if she's just, you know, a disposable item. This might be less than condoning. However, to reach into the life itself is not merely to show the grandeur of its achievement for the thickness of life comes from those conflicting details. And these don't really diminish the unbelievable and groundbreaking use of color in Turner's paintings. Ladies, I'm curious as... Uh, to your gut feelings toward Mr. Turner, the film and its depiction of the protagonist?
1: Well, my first instinct was that this film is, I mean, it's so much about these kind of two formative women um, uh, in his life. Uh, it, I mean, the kind of beginnings and endings um, of these relationships. And and so even you know, as the film takes us on a journey through his life, I find that it's, it lingers quite a bit on these two women and their like emotional responses to his gruffness or, or his like kind of uh, unexpected adoration or, you know, like, so it's a lot of not just Mr. Turner, but like the way he bounces off people, um, you know, in general, especially these two women. So I thought that was a really interesting part of it. it. I mean and help to enrich this otherwise maybe a little bit alienating protagonist because he's so just like grumpy and growly and, you know, it's it's difficult to like be like, I love him, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, grumpy, growly, gruff. Grunting. I mean, I think most of his lines are just like a series of grunts that are intoned in different uh, emotive styles. Uh, which I really <laughs> thought. I thought the performance was really effective and fantastic. Even though it took me a while to stop thinking of um, the actor is the character he plays in Harry Potter. But besides that, oh, yeah. um, he was. He was I think it was a really great, like very cool performance to see. Um, I totally agree about the women in this film. They were kind of this unexpected. Um, Th- they They brought something unexpected to this narrative that I wasn't expecting to see um and I really loved the relationship that he developed both with the maid and with uh Mrs. Booth is her name yeah, right? yeah. um and the way that they would respond to him and um the kind of warmth that they showed to him like made me feel like I ought to be warmer to him than I might otherwise
1: have been. And just like unwavering devotion, like, w- wow, <laughs> you know. They yeah,
0: just... certainly on the part of the maid. Then the Booth character was great because she also showed a sort of joyfulness that I wouldn't have fully understood in the Mr. Turner character. I guess with his dad, there's some great stuff that's brought out in that relationship as well. Um... But yeah, other than the protagonist, the other th- great thing about this film is the way it looks. I, I don't know how Mike Lee and his team made every single shot in this film look so sumptuous and perfect and just so much depth and color and detail. I, I, it would make me afraid to ever try and make a film if I was an aspiring filmmaker after seeing this. So <laughs> luckily I am a scholar.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, you both talked about, you know, the, uh, two women in this film. So I wonder how are we going to deal with two drastic different uh, representations of women in this film. On the, one, on the one hand, of course, we have the maid. And on the other, we have Mrs. Booth. And I think this setup is somehow provocative in the sense that the maid side of this story is very, very disturbing. I mean, at least to me. So how are, how's your feeling toward her or the gender representation in this film in general? Because, I mean, there's almost a rape scene in the film right so I don't know how are we going to deal with that um, in terms of uh, our perception of Mr. Turner
0: yeah it's hard to parse out how to feel about his relationship with the maid because she I don't think it's it's not necessarily unwanted advances like because she is so devoted to him but certainly it's not a relationship of equals and so that's problematic because he's she's willingly kind of giving him whatever he wants. And yet she's in such a powerless position that it's, uh, it does feel like that the, some, the at least that one scene between them is, um, I don't know if I would call it rape, but it feels like a, it crosses a line a little bit because you just know that she has no, she is, she has no agency um, really in that relationship.
1: Yeah. And their relationship is so, it's very ongoing, but it's, it's so sporadic and his attentions to her are so like, like unexpected in their moments. Right. Um, so, and part of the really interesting way they, they draw him as a character is like, um, that he, he has these kind of fits and starts of, of like lots of his, um, kind of instinctual behaviors, you know, where most of the time he's just sort of living in this, world of his mind. But then occasionally he'll just like, Oh, this is behavior. I'm, I'm (laughs) exhibiting it. You know, like it's not, um, it's not predictable, like when it will erupt, like his unpredictable, uh, nature is really focused on throughout the film. So you can see how that would be incredibly difficult for, um, these longstanding relationships with women that he had in his life. Like how, he kind of goes back and forth to the seaside to see Mrs. Booth, and and um, how he goes back and forth um, to his main house where the maid is, and so it's just like he's very very transient. Also, he's just like constantly on the move and and doing these different things. So it's it, it's he's just like an unpredictable character.
2: So I think one of the successful strategies that is deployed in this film is. Um the director Mike Lee shows Mr Turner really really honestly so uh the film doesn't quite forgive how he treats the people surrounding him but like uh we did see some redeeming qualities and I think This is also where sickness comes into play because sickness is such an important thing in this film because it comes out at the beginning of the film. And in a sense, you can say that sickness hounds this film. So from Turner's father to Turner himself, all we see is there's somehow disease-stricken bodies. And this choice echoes to a conscious choice to start the film in Turner's later life. So, I mean, I saw a painting of uh of young Turner and he actually looks quite handsome in his, you know, early years. Yeah. So, I looked it
1: up. I Googled it. <laughs> yeah. He was pretty handsome. And so of those <laughs> early portraits. Yeah. So do Were you feel self
0: portraits or? Yeah. Yeah, self-portraits.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you feel this is a successful, successful strategy to bring that up as I don't know, part of the justification of presenting Mr. Turner as uh, he's like in his later years.
0: Uh, yes. Um, so I didn't have a chance to see uh some of the other biopics that were that came out this year, like The Imitation Game and um, The Theory of Everything, uh, which are also both British uh, portraits of British men. Um, <laughs> so but. I got the impression that I probably wouldn't have been a fan of those movies in their approach to trying to sort of bang out the story of a person's life and kind of move through certain biographical details. And Mr. Turner just kind of throws that out the window and says, I'm just going to focus on this, these few years and these few relationships. And it's not going, I'm not going to try and like cram in certain biographical details. I'm just going to focus on this. Um, And it's really bold for me to say this because, as I said, I didn't see those other two films, but I like that. I like, I I get, I find biopics often very tedious and I would much (laughs) prefer them to go more in the direction of just sort of choosing a specific aspect to paint of a person.
1: Yeah, I agree. I like it when um, there's a specific segment that's focused on versus trying to, you know, it like... For instance, the the like, pretty silly uh, J. Edgar biopic, where you're you're trying to watch the entire life of J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> in a t- two hour movie, you're like, no, <laughs> I'm I'm not buying this.
2: Made by the most respected American director of all time, Clint Eastwood. Oh
0: God.
1: Oh boy. What's his
0: biopic gonna be like? Yeah. <laughs>
1: be a lot of it. Uh yeah, so I I appreciated that, you know, with with this film as well, the the kind of focus. Um and it and it gave, you know, the jeopardy that everyone's kind of in in their later years, especially during this time period. Um with, you know, the, the state of of illness can be so grave, right? Um uh I think it does help to kind of increase the tension and and drama in this what might also, you know, also consider, oh, just the last 25 years of his life, like how, what, how the, is that going to be interesting? But, um, but these kind of daily dramas are more grave with, with this kind of, you know, more vulnerable era, I think.
2: maybe. Well, and reading biopics, uh, most of the time, I like, you know, reading Wikipedia articles. So they, they, they become really tedious after a while. So. And I think one of the most, most important themes in Turner's paintings is how this kind of vanishing into a uh, void uh, is represented in his work. So, mm-hmm. so many sceneries are eclipsed by this disappearance. So I feel like the later life, uh, I don't know, the in- intensity of his later life really brings this up to another level in that sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would agree. All right, we'll have to end there. Again, Mr. Turner continues to play at Film Scene throughout the weekend and following week. For a complete list of times, check out Film Scenes website, icfilmscene.org. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss The patient Stone.
3: Stress and anxiety are the top 2 health-related impediments to learning. Everyone experiences stress and anxiety at some point in their college career. Keeping irregular hours, pulling all-nighters, eating junk food, and relying on ineffective learning strategies add to this college-related stress. Paying bills, being self-conscious, or becoming nervous before a test are expected life events that cause stress. Avoiding social situations, excessive worry, and an irrational fear or avoidance of something that poses little threat of danger is not something you should have to deal with on your own. When stress is unmanaged, one may begin to lack interest or ability to concentrate, feel tense, fatigued, or depressed. About 56% of college students experience these feelings and have anxiety. The University of Iowa Student Health Services can help you with this stress and anxiety. They offer services such as individual counseling and stress management consultations free to UI students. For immediate assistance, you can call the crisis hotline at 319-351-0140. This message was brought to you by the students at the University of Iowa College of Nursing.
0: Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film. Set in war torn Afghanistan, though stripped of its geopolitical context, The Patient Stone follows the daily struggles of a young woman caring for her much older husband. He's been reduced to a comatose state after being shot in the neck for defending his w- young wife's honor. We never learn the woman's name or her husband's, but we are soon privy to the wife's secrets and past betrayals as she uses her husband's silence as an opportunity to unburden herself of long-held resentments and antipathies. It is the wife's ongoing confession that piques spectator intrigue and propels the narrative forward, whereas the intermittent bombings and unwanted visits from malicious kalishnikov toting men feel more like interruptions than significant plot points. In this way, the experience of war from a woman's point of view radically shifts the very meaning of war. But I find myself wondering what this new meaning might be. While the wife in this film struggles to survive the ravages of perpetual combat, which includes caring for her two young daughters, she also expresses a certain satisfaction with her present circumstance and the ability to speak her mind freely and openly for the very first time. She is increasingly relieved to divulge her secrets to her husband, regardless of whether or not he can actually hear her and regardless of whether or not he will ever wake up. From Hollywood screens to arranged marriages, women's voices have been silenced time and time again, and it seems that at least one of this film's aims is to create a space where this long-suffering woman has the first, and more importantly, the last word. I found this aspect of the film very satisfying. Catherine, Changmin, what were your reactions?
1: I also uh, found some satisfaction (laughs) in that, uh, yeah, I mean... It's kind of a difficult film to navigate because she is, she's talking to, she's talking to him, but she's talking to herself so much and, um, and she doubts herself so much. She, she doubts whether or not she's kind of crazy or possessed or, or what's making her go into this confessional mode. But yeah, it becomes more and more a thing that's like a compulsion that she, she needs and, and it like is helping her be happier. Like we're seeing her definitely uh, become happier throughout the course of the film, um, which is a really interesting part of this. Um, But yeah, I'm not sure how to take this story amidst the context that it is because it's, I'm, I'm kind of wondering how to, how to make a, like a, a moral tale out of it, you know? I guess I'm having a similar problem.
2: Well, it's a very, very difficult uh melodrama in that sense because uh, it focuses on uh, the woman's voice so intensely and with her divulging her own secrets. So from time to time, the plot seems thin. But like, I mean, I wouldn't say that's a shortcoming of this film just because um, it has to be thin to be able to convey the emotional intensity of her suffering. So in that sense, it is, it's a successful attempt. I would say that. But also because, I mean, oh, most of the time, women's voices are denied in uh, mainstream filmmaking. So uh, if you read some of those feminist works, you, uh, you will find out that there's no uh, women's voiceovers in Hollywood. Before 1960, like there's only one film that is an exception, which is "A Letter to Three Women" by Mankiewicz. So it's in that sense, I would say, uh, by pu- putting so much emphasis on a single woman's voice, um, it lets us watch or examine her interiority that is often neglected in these. Uh, especially war on terror narratives, right? So because we are we are seeing the story from the other side, so it makes this choice more peculiar. Because uh, in Hollywood filmmaking or in Hollywood in general, we we so we see all these war on terror movies told by men or by fathers or by soldiers. Not single one of them. Uh, is issued from a woman.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So this is kind of leads into my next thought, which is that last week's Rocks in My Pockets also offered an unusual depiction of war. Uh, It was the Second World War from the perspective of a young mother in Latvia. And then, of course, Zero Motivation, which we also discussed last week, portrays military life, if not war, from the point of view of several young women in the Israeli army, So are we seeing more depictions of war in the military from women's perspectives in recent years? Is this something specific to international cinema? Uh, What do you guys think is going on there?
1: I think that that we are. And I think that that might be tied to the kind of normalization of the state of war, right? Where we're in kind of like, and that's kind of part of the joke of zero motivation, right? That we're like- in constant skirmishes and or things that we label, but then we just move on and we're constantly at war. Um, So maybe this, this kind of transition into thinking about war in the everyday um, instead of the state of exception, you know, like um, leads to this idea that we should be um, letting a a point of view in that that is more of the, um, the like domestic voice or the everyday voice. And that, and that often will be associated with women or, um, or the, just like the kind of everydayness of how family life in general is affected by perpetual war. Then that, then you kind of leap to this idea of how does it affect the women who are, um, who are dealing with with it on an everyday basis in that way. I don't know.
2: So uh, I want to give you some other examples. For example, I am thinking of Zero Dark Thirty or Mm -hmm. Homeland here. But like in those films or TV series, uh, women assume men's roles. Like they they become like real agents in the battleground or in the situation rooms. So I would say that that and that is the difference between films made in the United States and. In the uh, in other parts of the world because uh in all these different other, uh, different parts of of the world we we cannot we, we, we didn't see that often um, a woman is in the position of power so they often tell the story from this perspective of banality of everydayness of how Uh, how they they are going to deal with men in war. So I feel like that's the main difference here. And you you can say that's a national difference, but you can also say it is because a certain kind of uh, imbalanced power of distribution, imbalanced distributed power of international politics in that sense.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It does seem like in the U.S. mainstream film and popular TV that There's a paradigm that's been played out, and so whether or not a woman or a man is playing the lead protagonist, that protagonist has to have certain markers of a leader of war that it can't, like somehow we've just like, that's the formula, and so it can be adjusted to have a woman play that role, but she's going to still take on all the markers of uh, masculinity to do that. Um, So this is a film without names. Um, It's never explicitly stated that the film setting is in fact Afghanistan. Uh, we don't know which war is taking place. We don't know who is an enemy and who is an ally. And as I mentioned before, we never learn any of the characters' names. Uh, why do you think Director Atik Rahimi chose to create this ambiguity?
2: Do you have a tentative answer for us? At least for this question? No, because I'm just
1: asking the question.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's just, uh, you know, For me, it's just a part of this greater kind of normalization or like the, you know, the perpetual state of war and the perpetual kind of um, idea, especially from like, you know, a particularly Western perspective that like, oh, over there, that's that's just like wherever, you know, (laughs) there's war all the time and. I kind of think and that with like,
0: um like Claire Denis' White Material there's a similar th- thing where she doesn't name you're just sort mm-hmm. of like in West Africa and you're just like is is this a real place is this supposed to yeah. be referencing a real uh, revolt um yeah sorry I cut you off Catherine
1: Oh no no I no I think that you're right it's like that it's like kind of exploiting this um this perspective that like it could be anywhere it could be any time because the the view from the outside is this region is constantly in turmoil and constantly um dealing with with all of these issues uh, you know and have been
2: for yeah well uh in another sense with uh when you are telling a story without names it becomes harder to attribute uh any sort of responsibility or agency to any of those characters and well i feel i feel like it shows uh, this kind of very very ambiguous state of Afghanistan after nine one one especially when we are uh when the uh people from the United States uh treat Afghanistan as a unified uh country who which has this kind of amen- enmity towards you know the united states as as in general so I feel like that shows us how ordinary people feel about this kind of uh, perpetualization of a, of a world they don't even want.
0: Right, because it's not. I mean, many people living in Afghanistan aren't thinking of themselves as a United Nation against the United States. Like, yeah. it's, not their, it's not their first identity. And I guess the one kind of wrench in this whole identity-less movie is that um, their devotion to... Uh, Islam into the Quran is like the one thing that's remains intact is named over and over again. Um, which I found interesting that that would still sort of remain so central to the identity where, where everything else, the identity has, uh, has sort of fallen away or been stripped away. All right. We are going to end there. The patient's stone plays on Tuesday, March 24th at 6 PM as part of Bijou horizons, a series dedicated to bringing awareness to World Cinema. For more information on Bijou Horizons, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather.
1: It is fair and 55 degrees in Iowa City right now. It's lovely, everyone. It's really nice. Um, tonight, it will be clear with a low of 33 degrees, and tomorrow, it will be sunny and sixty-six degrees will be the high. Yay! Weather,
0: hurrah! You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. During our third segment, we'll be discussing Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. With us today to discuss the film seg- to discuss the film is Film Scenes co-founder and programming director Andy Brody. Welcome, Andy. We're overjoyed <laughs> to have you with us in the studio today.
4: Well, thank you. Super happy to be here.
0: Before we begin, Catherine, perhaps you can give us some context for our discussion of the film.
1: Yes, happy to. I confess, I had never seen *Strangers in Paradise*, Jim Jarmusch's game-changing 1984 independent film. Before this week. But it's easy to see why it was so forceful in the world of Indian cult film. It's stylish and funny, though very dry, and strange and meandering. Willie, a hip and grumpy young New Yorker, begrudgingly accepts his Hungarian cousin Eva into his apartment for 10 days while her aunt is in the hospital. He's not a very charming host, but she wears him down, especially when she presents him with a TV dinner. She further proves herself by not really caring what Willie thinks and maintaining her independence. When she leaves for Cleveland, he's sad to see her go. This is only the first act of the film, and the rest of the film is built upon interludes of further interaction between Willie, his friend Eddie, and Eva. Willie and Eddie visit Eva in Cleveland. They talk and are bored and conspire to be not bored. They go to Florida. But above all, it's important to Willie to keep them together and to hang out. They should be able to be young and hip and to wander. Jarmouche has made his name on these stylish and unhurried character pieces. However, he has famously been uncomfortable with an auteur status. So to begin our discussion, let's address this issue. Andy, as a big Jarmusch fan, do you see him as an auteur with a very specific vision and is Stranger Than Paradise a quintessential representation of that vision?
4: That's an interesting question. I, I think um, Jarmusch is someone, as you said, who's kind of um, balked at uh, you know being too analytical about his films, or I think he doesn't really like labels, so being labeled nature is something that he would reject. But certainly he has some very specific visual, um, stylistic um, themes that run throughout his work, especially the fact that we're doing his black and white features and his choice to shoot on black and white in some of his early work um, which probably not a popular choice and still remains a fairly uncommon thing so um, you know post Hollywood you know classic Hollywood film once we made the move fully to color um, so I think he just isn't interested in analyzing his film, so therefore he would reject the auteur label, but certainly there are a lot of elements. And his work that are recurring themes, and I think Stranger Than Paradise, we can talk more about. Certainly sets the tone for some of those in terms of its rhythm and its structure and its use of music. And yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Um, are are y'all uh, Jarmusch fans? Or
2: well, I kind of like Jarmusch in his early period, just because um, his shot compos- composition is so spatial. I mean, his screen is so. Uh, conspicu- uh, conspicuously unpopulated and there's always some empty space uh in every shot especially in this film and especially in this film uh he uses this one shot one scene technique so every scene is only consists of one shot so that makes him very very special i would say and in a certain sense, he's also very influential because he did bring this deadpan aesthetics into mm-hmm. American cinema. And we can see that Wes Anderson is def- definitely deeply influenced by this vision. So, yes, to me, I would say Jamush is definitely an auteur.
0: I'm not. I'm not so familiar with the Jarmusch Canon, Catherine. Uh, I also, Neither am I. It's okay. <laughs> I also hadn't seen. Well, I had seen like a bunch of different parts of Stranger Than Paradise before, but never the whole thing altogether, Which meant that I was surprised that they were actually in Cleveland during the middle of the film and not Buffalo, which I guess was just some sort of like narcissistic design of my own <laughs> I'm from Buffalo. So I just thought like all the scenes on Lake Erie, which I had seen before, were like or the scene in Lake Erie. Uh, I thought that that was. Buffalo in winter, obviously.
4: Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting speaking to the, like, the sameness of these American landscapes and the spaces that he chooses to feature in his film, you know, this post-industrial sort of bleak landscape. And, you know, Jarmusch is from Ohio, grew up in Akron, Ohio. So that may be one of the reasons they went to Cleveland and uh, specifically, but I think that's an interesting remark uh, for you uh, to just see that sameness because it's kind of, we see Eva's outsider perspective coming from a foreign country and actually like what her expectations were about America and what she actually finds when she gets here, which is sort of this decline of standards and <laughs> not really anything very exciting. And every, you know, they make the comment, yeah, everything looks the same. And by the way, that scene in the diner, uh, Jim is in the background at a, at a table eating a hot dog. So watch for that. If you, oh, if you didn't yeah. notice that he's like, puts himself in the scene. But yeah, his, his shot composition I think is really special. and for Strangers in Paradise, it may have been a um, you know a financial constraint in terms of not having a lot of film stock. It started out as a 30 minute short, just wow. the first segment of Eva coming and meeting uh, Willie and, and you know and Eddie and then that was uh, that he shot on film stock that Vim vendors gave to him they had left over from one of his films and then was able to expand that. But he plays on that and makes it a strength. And you see his, the influence of poetry and music on the film, and it's you know again it's rhythmic structure and the fade outs, the you know the, the cut to black, and the so, um, and then the influence of other directors. I think of Jarmusch as kind of a cultural sponge, and yeah. um, you know he's a big fan of someone like Ozu and other people who had very formal compositions and setting up spaces for their characters to move within, rather than doing this really really quick cuts and you know and a lot of editing. And, uh, quiet spaces, you know, talking about the influence of poetry, the blank spaces on a page being almost more important than where the words are placed. So in film it's for, for a director like Jim, it's almost more important where you choose not to cut than where you choose to cut, which is sort of the opposite of a lot of directors. So,
1: yeah. yeah. And I, I was just, you know, my next question is like, so this film is super successful at the 1984 Cannes Film Festival and marked this kind of big moment in in American independent film. Um, and I, you know, my question was like, what makes this film so pointedly different from other independent films during this era? Um, maybe, you know, is it making indie film more accessible? Um, or is it this like maybe seeming cultural sponge that you're talking about, Andy, this like kind of, you can see the, the influences, but you can also see his like, taking them and running with them. Um, maybe it's, maybe that's part of it. Um, or maybe it just seemed to be a complete departure. Um, what do y'all think?
4: Well, I mean, I think it's pretty unique from any, you know, anything we'd really seen before coming out, you know, coming out of the 1970s in a period of kind of American independent cinema and road movies and, yeah. or, or looking at, you know, loneliness and alienation and life on the road and kind of just, um, pushing back against cultural norms and chasing money and jobs and things like that. And the themes of alienation. So I, I think that those it, certainly outgrowth of those themes, but like formally and stylistically, I think it really went in, an, in a new direction. And um, for that period of time talking about like 1984 or the early eighties, I mean, he was a, a fellow student of Spike Lee's at NYU. They were mm-hmm. at NYU at the same time. And so I think it's kind of interesting to look at their work and then later what direction Spike Lee went or, and then, Compared to what Direction Jarmusch went, which is pretty yeah. pretty much staying true to his roots, which is where yeah, I do I would consider him an odd tour again. Getting back to that, but he just probably doesn't care for that label himself. But I definitely think I, I agree that he would be considered one. So, um, but yeah, I, I just think we hadn't really quite seen anything like it. It seemed like a new American vision, I think, which is why it did so well. You know, it had some European sensibilities, so it did well in Cannes. Um,
0: yeah, definitely. Than, yeah. yeah, European sensibilities. I mean, somehow this almost felt a little bit like influenced by Romare or Rivette, the sort of mm-hmm. oddballs of the new wave movement. So I could see this showing up in France and them being like, ooh, interesting. Long yeah. conversations and, <laughs> and spare he, compositions. You <laughs> also
2: uh, inherited a lot from Wim Wenders. But I mean, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. Wenders films, you don't get so many sweet moments. Like, <laughs> uh <laughs> characters in Winter's films are completely alienated. Like there's Mm -hmm. no possibility of having a conversation with each other. So I guess uh, this film does hold this uh, very, very delicate balance between uh, intimacy and alienation. Like we we do see how characters uh, establish a real connection among themselves. So I feel like that's the difference there. And, Oh, and another thing, like one of my former professor once told me that, okay, three important figures of American independent cinemas uh, are Jim Jarmusch, David Lynch, and John Cassavetes. And by, by 1984, John Cassavetes uh, was already very, very um, influenced by Hollywood narrative, I would say. And David Lynch was drafted by Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was making... Doom, I believe. So I feel like uh, you can, in that sense, you can definitely see Jamush as, as being, you know, pioneering a new kind of aesthetics that is going to be entrained in, trend in uh, next two decades.
1: Yeah, yeah. And his kind of staying in this mode of, um, of the indie film and, and being kind of loyal to that, that like, paradigm Um, yeah, I, I wanted to bring up this kind of idea that you were talking about with the, um, the outsider view in, and this also, so a lot of his Jarmusch's films are kind of described as urban cool. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure I, I want to maybe ask you guys about this description because, certainly the way we've been talking about it is this, okay, so there's outside view in with stranger than paradise. And, and there's this expectation of, of what Eva's going to see. And then sort of this disillusionment of, you know, kind of the, the wastelands of, of what she, you know, um, actually gets to see or not wastelands, but like, you Mm -hmm. know, um, this, this profound difference between what she maybe is expecting and what she gets to see or what they let her see. I mean, Willie's not a, great host, <laughs> not taking her to the sites or anything, yeah. but, um, but so how does that make us feel about the urban cool or the like kind of new urban experience that maybe it's pointing to, um, more generally?
4: Um, you know, I don't know. Cause I think in a lot of his work, there is an emphasis on, you know, urban disconnect maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's, a I mean, definitely people talk about like the coolness factor of, his work and hip, the hipster elements and just because he is a cultural sponge and there's a lot of like cultural references and like, especially, I mean, which are super explicit and like his most recent film, only lovers left alive. There's just references left and right. You know, oh my God, a whole, we're going to talk
1: about that. His,
4: yeah, <laughs> this wall of, you know, the wall of heroes and it's just like, okay, boom, there it's laid out very explicitly. <laughs> um, but with, uh, with strangers in paradise, you know, in, in particular, and then Willie and Eddie being certain kind of guys who are not interested in defining their life, around you know making money like if they have money they come to it through like gambling or theft or some sort of you know like they're hustlers it's like we we just are gonna like lay about basically and i just want to pack of cigarettes, and then let's get in this car and let's you know <laughs> like they encounter the factory worker like oh man i can't imagine that would be terrible that'd be the worst thing ever is so let's have to work in a factory every day mm-hmm. and then you know setting out to cleveland and again she just doesn't really yeah the her the experiences that she has through them are just not what she expected. They're not this, like, vision of economic might or 1980s, like, Reagan, America. And, and then as far as we talked about music and bringing those influences, like, it's her that starts the, I put a spell on you, you know, yeah. she's walking through the streets with that tableau of those shots there. Where it says, like, you know, um, U.S. out of everywhere. And yeah, flying that's flying. Right. And, like, you know, she hits play on the cassette deck and we hear the screaming Jay Hawkins and then that becomes, like, a repetitive thing where, and she really likes that. So that's, like, her most loved... Uh, like cultural thing that she experiences,
1: um, yeah. Where she says, "Screaming Jay Hawkins is a wild man."
4: Yeah, he's a wild man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, like what? Pretty, pretty great. But,
0: yeah. All right, um, let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion of Stranger Than Paradise with Andy Brody.
4: Underwriting support for KRY is provided in part by the Englert Theater, a community arts center and performance space that highlights the talents of local performers, artists, ensembles, and hosts regional, national, and international touring performances. Englert is located at 221 East Washington Street in Iowa City. For more information, dial 319-668-253 or go to www.englert.org.
0: Welcome back to BG Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Stranger Than Paradise with Andy Brody. Catherine, we were in the middle of a conversation about cultural references in.
2: Over oh, in Cool.
4: Yeah,
0: oh, Urban yeah, Cool. Urban Cool, yeah. yeah. Urban Cool. Yeah, so. I you know, honestly, when I was first watching or when I was watching this film, it just seems like such a hipster film. Which but this is like <laughs> thirty years ago. So I d I don't I was trying to figure out how those images would have been read at the time, whereas now they feel very contemporary, uh in the era of the hipster.
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, all of all of their style and all of their like speaking patterns and, and all of these things I mean, it just feels very relatable to now, (laughs) you know, and, and the other kinds of, um, kind of urban cool, even hipstery, um, I mean, I I was thinking about Francis Ha just because of, I mean, just formally as well as, um, Mm -hmm. as like the urban cool factor, but, um, you know, the black and white and the, um, and the music and, and all of that. But, um, yeah, I just think that it seems pretty contemporary. I don't know, Chang Yeah, did you I
2: think, think one of the contributions of this film is that it doesn't treat urban youth as a social problem that has to be uh, dealt with. Yeah. I mean, compared to previous films that deal with the same issue, for example, uh, especially films from the fifties and the sixties, we have like *Rebel Without Cows or *The Wild Ones*. So, in uh, in that particular context, I think jamush really gets into the living experiences of of these people who live in inner city, who uh, who I mean, their neighborhood all look alike. Like, I mean, New York doesn't make any difference to uh, Cleveland, right? And
0: it's a, it's a little different. <laughs> well, to me, I, I, I know.
2: I feel like there's there's uh, this same kind of depiction of uh dilapidation in his film again and again. So in Only Lovers Live Alive, we see Detroit, which yeah. which I mean also shows this same aspect to us. This kind of okay, unpopulated. Urban landscape, uh, which is in a state of decaying, which uh, all the windows are boarded up. So I feel like yeah. this this urban dilapidation is a constant fascination of Jim Jarmusch's, and especially you can see that from his films.
1: Well, and, and but you said earlier that um, it wasn't necessarily a commentary on on like youth and social problems, but. But do you think that there is kind of a pointed like so these are kind of shiftless youths uh, wandering around, you know, uh, not working like I can imagine, you know, uh, like, you know, general middle aged people watching this in in the mid 80s. Like, what are these young kids doing? Why why aren't they working? You know, this idea of them being kind of gambling and just kind of traveling around and not really working, watching TV.
0: But I think the folks that would have said that would have been so tripped up by the aesthetics of this film that Jarmusch (laughs) kind of like picked his demographic uh, from the onset.
2: And there's no parental figures in his films, not at all, right? So, I mean, uh, well, Jarmusch just doesn't really want to give uh, this kind of narrative in that sense.
1: Yeah. Well, I there feel. is, there's like the aunt on the phone, right? Uh, <laughs> or is it the grandmother? The grandmother? Oh, they, they, aunt. Yeah.
4: yeah. They aunt, visit her yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's very, yeah. And then I was thinking of like in Ghost in Ghost Dog, there's like a parent, but yeah, like there's very, very ghost little. Ghost
3: Dog. I forgot
4: about um, that movie. <laughs> Which this is conversation another, like, just
0: broke wide open.
1: <laughs> <everyone>.
4: <laughs> well, another like blend and meld of like culture, you know, like Japanese samurai films and hip hop, gangster hip hop and just like this crazy cultural meshing. I think like, the, yeah, he's not interested in, you know, traditional narrative for sure. And he kind of works from these, you know, piecing together these moments, c- cultural. they're their character studies and
3: mm-hmm. they're like
4: cultural observer, you know, observations right so he's piecing together these moments and then kind of seeing where that takes him to something that can resemble a narrative until he has a film but it's certainly not like he he's not interested i in probably in write you know a traditional three-act screenplay and you know like that's not how he probably works from what i've read from interviews i've read yeah um and you see that in the in the product in the final in the final film so um
1: well, I definitely yeah. want to, uh, talk about, I mean, cause I, I really loved only lovers left alive. I really, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, I didn't even remember that it was Jarmusch, but anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I loved <laughs> it's like it. Is this like a compliment from you? No, no, I just like, uh, when we were talking about this film. it's not from Jarmusch. No, no. I just, when we were talking about that, I was like, oh, only, oh yeah, that was him. I didn't, I just like forgot that it was him, but, um. But so I kind of want to talk about uh, that film in relation to this film, because I think the outsider view in is really um, similar. But also, I really, really think we should talk about music because um, it's such a huge part of Stranger Than Paradise and a huge part of Jarmusch in general, because um, he often uses, you know, leading well, the two leading men in Stranger Than Paradise are musicians. Uh, Jarmusch himself is a musician. We have this, as we said before, the screaming Jay Hawkins kind of uh, recurring at at pivotal points, the kind of mood music cue that's happening. Um, So maybe let's talk about uh, this film and Only Lovers Left Alive in terms of music and its importance to Jarmusch and his kind of moods and aesthetics.
4: Um, Sure. Well, I mean, the music I think is an outgrowth of his, also his love for poetry, Mm -hmm. and being you know he studied literature in school at Columbia and you know wanted to be a poet. He's very influenced by poetry. There's a lot of explicit and and also indirect references to poetry in his work, and so you know, music being basically poetry, right? You know, like um, that informs the the narrative, informs the uh, formal structure of the film. And the, the, you know, the, the, mood that it sets, right. Like literally putting a spell on you with Strangers in Paradise. And then I think kind of similarly with Only Lovers Left Alive, yeah. it's pretty transic. You could pretty easily, like, I think the first time I saw it, I was just kind of not, you know, bobbing along and I love the sound, the score for it in the original work. And mm-hmm. then, and then Jarmusch being a musician himself, like we're that working in that early, like New York, um, 80s music scene and doing keys and synth and vocals and his, and he was in a band and he's in a band now and so like you know that's coming for mission creek which is why we kind of decided to do the series now
1: yeah and
4: so um i'm not sure i'm making a really coherent point other than yes it's an extremely important foregrounded element in his films and uh definitely his his body of work would not be what it is without that recurring theme of of music, And he, you know, like music is often really, really bad in a lot of, you know, mainstream filmmaking, but for, him, I think he has a really great taste and it's very personal. And I think that's informing as much as anything. Like you don't imagine him again, writing, a, writing a script or making a film and then and going to a music supervisor and saying like, find me stuff. You imagine that like he was listening to this as he was writing or as he was, um, you know, building the film in his, in his head. So like, therefore they're kind of essentially linked, and then oh, yeah. vendors again. Getting back to vendors is another director who uses music quite like explicitly and is very foregrounded in his work. So, yeah.
0: And Jarmusch is scoring some of his own film, right? Is that- yeah,
4: Squirrel. Well, like they did original music for Only Lovers Left Alive. Okay. So, no his earlier work, I don't think he did. But like John Lurie, he. So John Lurie, who plays. Um, who's Willie in stranger in paradise is a musician and that he discovered him playing on the streets of New York. And so, you know, like, and then, you know, putting him into the film and the, he does uh soundtrack work for it. And then he again, he again does soundtrack work for original score work for uh down by law. So, mm-hmm.
1: um, and the Eddie character used to be the drummer for Sonic youth. Uh, the, it's true.
4: Yeah. Um, yeah, so I true, know true facts.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, and,
4: and, and plays the car par- parking valet in Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller, Val. yeah,
1: Sorry. Oh, that's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, the ponytail. I was like those little little Yeah. Aside, yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. Uh, so yeah, others have made some observations on music, but so I don't. Yeah.
1: Yeah, are there are other. Uh, I mean, I certainly with uh, Stranger Than Paradise and this like repeated use of "I uh, put a spell on you." It's such. Yeah, you can't imagine. Um, him being like, well, just, let's just like find a song that's sort of, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. like sort of sort of dark, but like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's such a particular evocative song. Um, I was trying to like maybe get y'all's opinions about what mood that, that evokes in you and how does that align with the story? I mean, does it contradict the, the kind of story that we're dealing with or does it hmm. enrich it? Or like, I mean, I just felt like when that was coming on, over and over again, I was just like, "How am I supposed to ingest this music with this story? Like, how am I supposed to marry them together?" Because it seemed so dark. For uh...
0: well, that's, so, I wasn't nearly as affected by the music. But sometimes I zone out a little bit when I'm watching movies. Two soundtracks in particular, like it's not my um, touchstone. In watching films, uh, mostly I was really attracted to Eva's voice, just the way she sounds. So every time she was talking, I was having sort of like the experience that you're describing with the music—not that it was dark, but that it's just so effective. Like the way she talks, and then also mm-hmm. all of her lines were just fabulous. It was just like every single thing that she said, I was like, "This is great." Mm-hmm. Like when she says, "The stress annoys me," <laughs> 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 like, I don't know. Like every single thing was, uh, yeah, poignant for me and affecting.
2: Well, I think with the use of music in this film, you can see how Jamush strives for a certain kind of juxtaposition of different cultures and different values mm-hmm. while maintaining uh, each of their individuality. So I'm thinking about, I don't know why, but I'm thinking about Dead Man here because, I mean, the protagonist from Dead Man is called William Blake. Right. So so, that's, so there's the weirdness or crookedness that is always there in his films. And, and as an audience, you feel like watching this film is kind of fun because you have to negotiate between the conflicts of different cultures and values and I don't know. So that's, that's how I like uh, his early films. And I think there's, there's a sign of this in this early film because this is his first film, but I feel like it's already there.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just grows and grows. Like I just kept, um, I mean, as I said, only lovers left alive into it. (laughs)
4: <laughs> um, oh, that's an endorsement right yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: but All like right. Uh, Tom yep. Hiddleston's character the main male protagonist in Only Lovers Left Alive like music is is identity right it's not just like used to evoke or used to get audiences or used to like express like his, his character is so saturated in it that mm-hmm. he's that it just is his identity um, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is really interesting to think about the growth of um of this kind of trope in Jarmusch's work from Stranger Than Paradise, where it's it is an evocative thing and it's associated with with Eva's identity in such a way. Like when she's having a happy moment, it'll often be playing like she's dancing in the kitchen or they they play it in the car and they're having like a a nice moment. Um, but like then it moves like seeing now this 2013 film where we see this embodied character who's just like saturated with all music as identity, um, which I thought was really interesting as a juxtaposition between these two uh, or a continuation even um, between these two films. So I don't know. Did you guys have uh, uh, quick thoughts on Only Lovers Left Alive and, and that musical experience? I
2: don't like Only lovers Live Their Lives. Oh, my so
1: gosh. How dare you? We're going to have to wrap this up. <laughs> this show is over. This show is over.
0: <laughs> and, in fact, we have to end there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stranger Than Paradise plays at Film Scene this Saturday, March 14th at 1 p.m. and Sunday, March 15th, also at 1 p.m. These screenings kick off the series A Sad and Beautiful World, the black and white films of Jim jarmusch for more information on the series check out film scenes website icfilmscene.org and if i should i uh, reiterate that jarmusch himself will be here during the mission creek festival which starts march 31st yes Great. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. A note to our listeners, Bijou Banter will be on hiatus next week for spring break. Woohoo! But don't worry, we'll be back on Wednesday, March 25th after the break. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. Chongmin, it's a pleasure as always.
4: Likewise.
0: Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, it was fun. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter in two weeks.